So we're hanging out in the Gospel of Luke, and tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the titles of Jesus that's found in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I think it's interesting to see the way Luke uses uh, different testimonies from other people uh, regarding their identity of who he is and what he came to do. Now, we're going to look at Luke two more Wednesday nights after this, and then when we come to uh, the month of May, I want us to hang around in the book of Psalms for a while. Uh, I'm starting a new series this coming Sunday, looking for three weeks at Psalm 90. So if you have a chance to read that, uh, it'll kind of get you a head start to what we're going to talk about. But that's an interesting section of the Bible. The Psalter is full of all kinds of different uh, material and all kinds of different genres. And uh, so we're going to sort through that a little bit beginning in May. But uh, for tonight, what we want to do is take a look at the Gospel of Luke. And I want us to just have our Bibles available and ready to kind of flip back and forth a little bit in the Gospel of Luke. And the way we want to get to the heart of what is happening here is to ask a question. And the question is, who is Jesus? It seems as though that's a major concern uh, in Luke's gospel. So the identity of this one who is a rabbi that teaches and a miracle worker uh, begins to take focus in the Galilean ministry section. And before you get to chapter 9, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and goes through Samaritan villages, uh, and before that last week of his life, in chapter 4, verse 31, to chapter 9, you have what is called the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And of course, uh, Galilee is an, a region up north around the Sea of Galilee, and it's there that we find many of these terms that are applied to Jesus. Now, the subject matter we're talking about tonight, if you were to use a theological term, is called Christology. Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus. It can include miracles, it can include parables, it can include different things, but it mostly in the Gospel of Luke, as we want to look at it tonight, is found in some of the titles. And in the question, who is Jesus, it's answered by a variety of different people on a variety of different occasions. Now you'll see here on the slide, uh, this question pops up out of the mouths of all kinds of different individuals. So let's begin tonight in chapter five, and you'll take a look in Luke five, and you'll see that there is an account of a paralytic that is trying to see Jesus and uh, it's so crowded, he can't get to Jesus, and some of his friends tear apart uh, the roof and lower him down into the presence of Jesus. Now, something very unusual happens there. In verse 20, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, not just the paralytic, but the, the uh, individuals that actually ripped open the roof of the house and lowered him, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then this response, verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow 
who speaks blasphemy. Now, it's interesting, Jesus here doesn't say, get up and walk. He doesn't say, you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. And this sets off the scribes and Pharisees, and they consider this blasphemy. There's ongoing dialogue between the religious leaders and Jesus, but my point here is the question, who is this fellow? That becomes a central point in the Gospel of Luke. And if you go over to chapter 7, verse 20, you'll see that it's asked again. So in chapter 7, verse 20, you have here John the Baptist is in prison. He's been arrested. And he thought everything, once he prepared the way for the Lord, that the Lord's ministry would turn things around. But he finds himself incarcerated. And so he tells some of his disciples to go and ask Jesus in verse 19, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? So this is not stated the same way, but it's the same idea. Who are you? Who are you? Who is this man? Then in chapter 7, verse 49, same chapter, you find a woman comes up behind Jesus and anoints him uh, with an alabaster jar of perfume. And what we find is the reaction of the uh, Pharisee uh, is found in verse 49. His name is Simon. And uh, Simon um, begins to judge this woman for her actions. And then as Jesus is interacting with Simon, it says in verse 49, as the guests there are observing this conversation, they ask the question, who is this who even forgives sins? So you're seeing here Luke interjecting this question, who is this man? We find in chapter 8, uh, verse 25, after the calming of the storm, what we find is this comes out of uh, the lips of Jesus, uh, of, of uh, the disciples as well. So in chapter 8, verse 25, it says here um, that after he calms the waters, the disciples, in fear and amazement, asked one another, who is this? Who is this man? And one last one is the question that is asked by Herod, the ruler, uh, after John has been beheaded. He just doesn't know if John the Baptist has come back to life. And in chapter 9, verse 9, he makes a comment about the ministry of Jesus, and he says, who then is this I hear such things about? So do you see the commonality? Out of the lips of all these different characters in the book, they're asking the same question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Now, the answer to that question is found only two times directly in the Gospel of Luke. The first time is in chapter 9. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am in verse 18? Who am I? So some of them reply, John the Baptist, Elijah, and so forth. But Peter speaks up and he says in verse 20, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. 
So you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. These are other terms that will come about in the gospel of Luke. The other testimony is found in the same chapter, verse 35. So this is the account of the transfiguration when uh, Peter and John and James go up to the mountain to pray with Jesus, and there he is transfigured in glory before them. And then they hear a voice, verse 35, come from the clouds saying, this is my son, I have chosen, listen to him. So you have a series of questions, who is this man? And you have two testimonies, Peter and God the Father, that says, this is my son. And so these questions uh, then lead to a bunch of different titles that you find in the gospel. But this is found in the Galilean section of the gospel of Luke. Uh, all of this is taking place up north. And what we find is that there's a setup for the answer by all these people asking the same question. And then the answer to that is given by Peter and by God the Father. Okay, questions or comments there? So the titles of Jesus are an interesting uh, dynamic in this gospel because the titles are unfolding before us to get a well-rounded understanding of who Jesus is. Now, the thing to watch in the Gospel of Luke is how these titles function. They're not just static statements. Uh, they are an unfolding of information within the Gospel. And they're not static entities in the sense of they all have the same meaning. We'll see that in a moment with the title Lord, because the title Lord that is used in Luke is applied to several different people in as well as Jesus. So they're fluid titles. And what we find is that they give shade of meaning depending on the context or the story that you find them. And there's an interconnection between the context and the title. So when you find the confession of Peter here, the context is all these people are asking these questions, who is this man? And so Jesus prompts the question, who did these crowds say that I am? And they just, they just kind of parrot what they have heard other people saying. And then in verse 20, he says, but what about you? Okay, these are what the crowds are saying, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up, and he says, the Christ of God. And then his balloon is burst in verse 21, when Jesus says, uh, not to tell anyone. It, that's interesting. He warns them not to tell anyone. So you have this small little insight here that, they have an insider in, uh, set of information. And Jesus wants to let the crowd struggle with the identity of who he is. And he says here, don't tell anyone this. And I think what he's doing is setting up to allow this to unfold, not too quickly or prematurely, because he says in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and must be killed on the third day. 
and be then be raised and on the third day be raised to life. So he knows it's going to lead to his execution, but he doesn't want that to happen prematurely. He has other things that he wants to unfold before the crowds and his disciples. And so this is often called the messianic secret. Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't want that information uh, broadcast uh, with a megaphone, at least at this point. Thoughts, questions? Now, here's another interesting dynamic. So we are looking at the question, and here are the answers. A title that's found in the Gospel of Luke is Son of God. Now, what's really interesting is you would think that this would be throughout the gospel, but it's only mentioned six times. And the more uh, dominant uh, title that is found in the gospel of Luke is son of man more than son of God. But the six times you can see on the screen here that the title is used is first in the Annunciation, uh, the birth narrative, where um, the angel gives a proclamation in chapter 1, verse 35. The angel says the Holy Spirit, this is speaking to Mary, is going. Um, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So we are introduced to this term for the first time in Luke, uh, from the lips of the angel. Then in chapter four, when Jesus goes out to the wilderness where he's going to be tempted, the confession, son of God, comes from the devil himself. In two of the temptations, in chapter four, verse three and nine, he then tempts Jesus using this title that he is the Son of God. So let me give you one example of this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 3, the devil comes to him after he's been hungry and says, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Then in verse 9, uh, we see that as he stands at the highest point of the temple, the devil says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for here from here, for it is written, he will give his angels command over you. So two testimonies, one from an angel, one from the devil, and then it is the outcry of the demons in chapter four and chapter eight, when they are about to be exercised uh, from uh, the people that are being possessed. So you're already in chapter four, just look at verse 41. Verse 41 it's talking here about uh, the different sicknesses that Jesus is healing in verse 40. But in verse 41, it says, Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Again, there's that messianic secret a little bit at work here. He doesn't want that information to get out too prematurely. Uh, then one of the accusations of the religious leaders when he's on trial uh, is a question of 
whether he is the son of God. And the final confession is the centurion at the foot of the cross in chapter 23, where he observes the death of Jesus and says, surely this was the son of God. Isn't it interesting, though, in Luke, the term son of God never comes out of the mouths of any of the disciples. It, they only come out of various people on the outside of that circle of, of disciples. In contrast, that's the first thing out of Mark's lips in Mark 1.1. He talks about Jesus being the Son of God in the very first verse. So Luke, I think what he's doing is using the confession of other people here rather than disciples to make the point. So we come back again to where is he proclaimed to be the Son of God from kind of the insider circle uh, that we might call it. Well, two places. One, at his baptism, where the heavens open up and says, this is my beloved son, uh, listen to him. And again, at the transfiguration that we just looked at a second ago. Those are the two places in Luke where you have this divine confirmation of the identity of Jesus as the son of God. The only other place that occurs in Luke is in a parable. And perhaps you've heard of the parable uh, of the owner of the vineyard that hires tenants that um, continue to do dastardly deeds of violence. And finally, the owner is says, well, I'll send my son and they won't hurt him because he's my son. Now, this is kind of a, uh, a roundabout way of saying that he's the son of God, because the owner of the vineyard in the parable in chapter 20 is referencing God the Father. And so when he says, I will send my son to these tenants, he, what, the point that's being made there is he is sending Christ into the world, and in the world there is wickedness and rejection and ultimately death uh, uh, that will happen to his son. So the term son of God occurs in a variety of places, but it doesn't come from the lips of the disciples or any of the followers of Christ. It comes off the lips of those on the outside of this narrative that Luke is developing. Have any questions there or comments there? Isn't that an interesting dynamic in, in this gospel? So anything? Another term that is used quite often and actually more so than the term son of God, is the term prophet. Now, Jesus will be compared to Moses and the other prophets very early on in the Gospel of Luke. What we'll find is that the prophetic identity of Jesus is directly tied to his relationship with his cousin, John the Baptist. So again, when you remember the birth narratives, Zechariah uh, declares that John the Baptist will possess the spirit and power of Elijah in chapter 1, verse 17. And what we'll find then is that he will lead the way. He will prepare the way. He will uh, open up the avenue for Jesus to be one that is greater than him, which by implication means if John the Baptist carries out the prophetic uh, power 
uh, in his ministry and Jesus is greater, uh, it is affirming that Jesus is greater than the prophets of the Old Testament as well as John. So what we find is here in the birth narrative in chapter one, uh, Jesus is called the son of the most high in verse 32. He's called the mighty savior from the house of David. Zechariah, though, confirms the angelic announcement, and he says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. And um, what we find is, by extension, we're talking about John the Baptist here, uh, when when Jesus says that he uh, has come uh, to carry out the ministry that has been prepared by John the Baptist, what he is talking about is that he takes a bigger role. And in John's gospel, you'll remember uh, that John cries out, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And um, and he says something to the extent, he must increase, this is John the Baptist speaking, and I must decrease. In other words, I have a role, but my role is limited, follow Jesus. So by extension, Jesus is being seen not only as a prophet, but as one that is greater than the prophets because he considers John the Baptist to be the one of the, the greatest of the prophets. And this we see in Luke 7. So turn over to Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, there is this issue that's taking place where um, there's this encounter between uh, uh, John and Jesus. Take a look at verse 18. It says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one that was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and uh, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd, and he says, What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But did you go? Uh, but what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, and this is out of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So he elevates John as the prophet of prophets, and yet his role is to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And it is here amongst this discussion with the followers of John the Baptist, you have the confession that Jesus 
is not only a prophet, but he follows the spirit of prophecy. And this spirit of prophecy leads to him. And what we find taking place is that he is opening up through John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, a ministry that had closed down. Now you see this reference here down at the bottom of the slide. 1 Maccabees 9.27, 1 Maccabees 4.46, and 14.41. Now, obviously, 1 Maccabees is not in a Protestant Bible. It is found in a Catholic Bible. It's those, um, those books that are called the Apocrypha. But if you look at 1 Maccabees 9.27, you would find that it states that after Malachi, there were no prophets um, that were to be found in Israel. In other words, God was not opening a avenue of communication to the nation through the prophets like he had been for many, many years. So this is often why it's called the 400 silent years between the Old and New Testament. The prophets have not spoken, and now all of a sudden John is reopening that office, and Jesus is the one that he's pointing to. Now, this goes hand in hand with the way Luke begins this topic of Jesus as prophet. We looked at this a couple of times in the previous weeks where he's in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And a lot of the same things that he told John the Baptist here in chapter seven were stated back then. And he says, today, this prophecy is being fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is placing himself as a prophet uh, that is fulfilling the spirit of prophecy that has been prepared for by John the Baptist. So that's a mouthful, and I understand it is. Do you have some um, some comments or questions? Can I help clarify that? Now, even some of the events in Luke um, kind of then parallel some of the things that you find prophets doing. There's Here's an example right here where the raising of the widow's son in chapter seven um, is very much like the ministry of Elijah raising the widow's son in first Kings chapter 17. So not only is he being called a prophet, he's actually doing the work of the prophets too, in this case. And the parallel is between him raising the widow's son as well as the prophet Elijah, who had done it so many years prior. Any thoughts there? So this is kind of technical stuff, isn't it? But yet at the same time, Luke is quite profound in the way he's pointing to Jesus. Uh, John's disciples, um, are the ones that are asking straight out, are you were the one we were expecting? And so he defines what he is in relationship to what he's doing, the miracles that he is performing. Well, in chapter seven, after this conversation, he finds himself um, in, the, uh, <clears throat> in the presence of uh, Simon the Pharisee in chapter 7, you come down to verse 39. So it says here in verse 36, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
And then this woman comes in and anoints him. And then uh, Simon is going to speak up, uh, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So Simon is saying, okay, if he is projecting himself to be a prophet, no prophet would allow this to happen, a sinful woman, which is kind of another way of assuming that the woman that has come up and anointed him uh, was a lady of the night. And, and Jesus responds in verse 40 and says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who, who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly. And then he says, this woman... Uh, appreciates what he has come to do. So the question that Simon has asked regarding his being a prophet is answered by the fact that this woman saw in Jesus more than a prophet, but also one that would uh, forgive her and give her a new life. And it's so pro- profound. Uh, it says in verse 45, Jesus is still talking to Simon. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven or she has loved much. So all of this relates to Jesus being a prophet And what we find is that uh, Luke is illustrating this in a variety of ways, through conversation and through action. Any any comments there? Okay, let's move on. So another term that occurs real often in the Gospel of Luke is Lord. Now, here's where you have to be careful. The term, same Greek word, Lord, occurs 103 times in the gospel, but they don't all refer to Jesus. In some of cases, um, 24 of them, in fact, it's used of different people beside Jesus. And even some of the characters in the parables of Jesus are called Lord as well. Now, In these cases, we would say that it is Lord with a small L, not a capital L. It's kind of the equivalent of Sir. It's a a common greeting. Um, But what we find is that the term Lord, as it refers to something greater, that is used of a king or a ruler or a master, is is applied to Jesus in a few different ways, uh, but you have to pay attention here when it's being referred to Jesus as the Lord, the one that God sent to bring the kingdom of God versus others that are called Lord as a title of respect. Does that make sense? Okay, so 
the way to differentiate these two is when it has a divine um, element to it uh, that is applying to Jesus. The term Lord is capitalized in your Bible, but when it's referred to as a common greeting or a title of respect, it'll use a lowercase l. Does that make sense? Okay. So you can see here at the bottom, um, the title was often used for rulers and masters in the Greco-Roman world as well. So it's a title of respect for teachers, people that make a contribution to the society, but they're not elevated in the sense of a reference to God. However, it is interesting that the term Lord, as it's applied to the divinity of Jesus, is found in a few different places. So again, a lot of these things are introduced to us in the birth narratives. And what we find in chapter 2, verse 11, and we're all familiar with this text, where the angels announce, to you was born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is the Messiah or Christ, the Lord. There is the reference uh, that is not just a title of respect, it's a title of position as well. Um, if you have your Bible, go to chapter 5. And what we find here is a juxtaposition between the Lord and a sinner. So when, um, when the calling of the first disciples happened in chapter 5, you'll remember that Simon Peter is out fishing, and um, what we find is Jesus comes along in verse 4 and says, put your net out into the deeper water and let down the nets for a catch. And Peter speaks up and says, we've been working hard all night. Verse five, we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, okay, I'll let down the nets. And he has this large catch of fish in verse six. And then he signals his fishing partners to come over and help him bring in these fish. But here's what's fascinating in verse eight. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John and the, uh, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. But isn't this a fascinating response in verse 8? There's the recognition that this one who made a prediction that if they threw the net down in a different spot, they would have a large number of fish. And the title Lord here is one that has, um, has power over the natural world, that he, somehow he had influence on the school of fish that then came into the net. So... This is where it starts to take some different um, different shades uh, and, and elements of it that we're more familiar with. When we say Lord Jesus, we're seeing it as a divine uh, title, not just a common greeting. You're in chapter 5, go over to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, if you make your way down to verse 46, this is after the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, 
it's interesting that um, Jesus puts his disciples on the spot in verse 46. So they've just heard what he has had to teach. And then in verse 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So there's an element of authority now in this title uh, uh, that's found in this particular narrative here. So the term Lord is one of those more difficult and complex titles that you find in the Gospel of Luke. Um, the capstone to it is the uh, Easter narrative, where in chapter 24, um, the empty tomb leads to the confession in verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. Yeah. So Lord, it's found everywhere, but it doesn't always apply to Jesus. And when it does to apply to Jesus, it is a growing sentiment that it applies not just to his position, but to his power as well. Thoughts there? Now, the term Messiah or Christ, interchangeable, means anointed one. And this title is the title that is given to him in a variety of places, again, back in the birth narrative, I've said that about three or four times already tonight, to you was born this day in the city of David, a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. So it brings all these things together. So Messiah, um, the anointed one, is the recognition of one that is to come to be the king. And the idea of anointing is... Um, is important to uh, keep in mind here. The anointed one goes all the way back into the Old Testament where kings were literally anointed in their position with oil. And so often in the Old Testament, the king was referred to as the Lord's anointed. And the identity of Jesus is here being used in such a way that this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the one that is king, and uh, and and that's how Peter is talking about it when he is answering Jesus' question, who do men say that I am? Now, here's an interesting uh, element to it. Even though the title is used with great respect by the disciple, uh, Peter, and, uh, and some others as well, when you go to the end of the book of Luke, it's a term of mockery, though. So Jesus is hanging between the two criminals. And, um, and what we find in chapter 22, verse uh, 67, what we find is that the religious leaders um, are recognizing this term that is being used. And he says, if you're the Messiah, they are asking him, if you're the Messiah, <laughs> tell us. Uh, and in chapter 22, what we find is that uh, this expectation is a death sentence if he is to respond to it. So in chapter 22, they want him to say that he's the Messiah because he can then be accused of blasphemy. So when you come down to verse 67, this is after some other things have taken place, um, you find that 
the guards mock Jesus in verse 63, and then he comes before Pilate and Herod in verse 66. And that's where we find this, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Jesus will respond, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying, I am. Now they had him. That's blasphemy. That will then lead to the releasing of Barabbas and crucifixion. And um, what we find here uh, is, the uh, I mentioned just a moment ago, one of the criminals, as he's hanging on the cross, uh, chapter 23, verse 39, says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So in other words, live up to your to your position. So the title here conveys an element of what they were expecting, and yet at the same time, the religious leaders will not accept that and use that as a way uh, for condemnation. Jesus, even you see where he was talking to Pilate and Herod, keeps doesn't keeps using this idea of the Messiah kind of as a hidden secret for the disciples. He doesn't come straight out a lot of times and say so, but um, this element of keeping his Messiahship as one of those titles that's kind of insider information for the disciples, he will reveal himself to be uh, the one they had been waiting for. Some thoughts, comments there? All right, so we come now to this term son of man. And this term is used fairly often. Uh, we saw it already a couple of times in some of the verses that we read. And that's the way Jesus refers to himself. Now, the great question is, is he trying to relate himself back to where it first occurs? So if you have um, if, if you have your thumb in Luke, keep it there and go back to the book of Daniel for a moment. So in the Old Testament, uh, book of Daniel, this is where we first come across this term, son of man. And it is something that... Um, is carried forward into the ministry of Jesus. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. So just remember the context of this for a moment. You remember that uh, Daniel uh, interprets the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar early in the book, but he has his own dreams as well. And um, the dream is about four beasts uh, that are found at the beginning of the chapter. And they're rather strange. They take on strange appearances. Uh, you'll look down in verse four, it says uh, he sees a beast coming out of the sea. The first one's like a lion that had the wings of an eagle. Then you see a second beast in verse five, looks like a bear. And then in the third beast is like a leopard in verse six. And the fourth beast is like a terrifying, powerful, large uh, beast with iron teeth in verse seven. 
Now, we don't know what that means, but the interpretation of it begins uh, in verse 13. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and then he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. So you have these picture uh, in the dreams of four beasts, and they represent something. But then you have a picture of a son of man that's going to come and um, and and basically defeat these beasts and set up his kingdom. So it's a very specialized term from Daniel. And how do we know what the interpretation of the beasts are? Well, that's the rest of chapter seven. It represents uh, the beasts are different kingdoms that had um, held Israel captive. If you come down to verse 17, uh, here's the interpretation. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So this Son of Man is seen as one that is coming to set up his kingdom once and for all. Now, the key question is, is that what Luke means as he talks about Jesus being the Son of Man? And is that what Jesus means when he refers to himself as the Son of Man? There's a lot of debate about that among scholars as to whether he's referring back to Daniel or not. It's interesting that this same image is found in uh, some of the Apocrypha as well, this um, this apocalyptic figure is found in the book of First Enoch as well. What some scholars think is, in contrast to Son of God, this title, Son of Man, may be just a generic term of self-reference to mean that he is a full human being, that he has come to minister to human beings, he identifies with human beings, and all that we go through. Have I lost you at all? Any questions? Okay, one last title for tonight. And that's the title Savior. Luke is the only synoptic gospel to call Jesus Savior, which is interesting. Again, it goes back to the birth narrative. I keep talking about the birth narrative. Uh, the angel said, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who's Christ the Lord. What we find is that this idea of Savior is connected to what he has come to accomplish. Now, even though uh, Luke mentions the term Savior, notice this, this is important. The term, or title rather, is only mentioned twice in the gospel. However, the term salvation from which a savior comes is mentioned repeatedly. So when you see some of the passages that talk about salvation, let's take uh, Zacchaeus as an example. So in chapter 19, um, you find uh, Jesus going to the house of Zacchaeus, who is a chief tax collector. And after having dinner, 
uh, Zacchaeus stands up and says, if I've offended anyone or taken anything from someone unjustly, I will pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Referring to the fact that there's been a deliverance of Zacchaeus from his obsession with money, um, using and abusing people. And now Jesus will make a statement in chapter 19, following this proclamation, that salvation, or Jesus as Savior, has brought about this change within Zacchaeus. He then states this in chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham, for the son of man, there's the term son of man, has come to seek and to, what, save what is lost. The one who does saving is the one who is a savior. And so you see Luke talks about Jesus as being a savior through his actions and through his statements as well. So Luke is an interesting um, gospel. There is uh, some different things that are mentioned in other places. Again, back in the birth narratives, uh, you find this repeated. But the other angle to being a savior that's mentioned back in the birth narratives, chapter one, is it's more than a personal salvation. It's a national salvation as well for the nation of Israel. So you remember in some of the statements in chapter one, um, there is this proclamation that something's going to happen uh, that will put down the enemies of Israel. So in chapter one, verse 67, Zechariah uh, is filled with the spirit and he prophesies. And it says in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So Savior is not just a personal, individual relationship to Jesus. It has national elements related to it as well. And so you got to kind of keep that in balance in the Gospel of Luke between these two entities. In the case of Zacchaeus, it's a personal thing. Salvation has come to this house. This man is changed. But salvation in some other places in Luke's gospel refers to that time when salvation is for the nation uh, and they will be freed from the enemies that continue to oppress them. So this is a little bit of a tedious type of study but I don't want you to miss what Luke is doing with all these titles that you find in the book. So I'm gonna stop our share here and see if you have any thoughts or questions or comments in regard to any of the titles that are one of the themes in Luke's gospel. Anything on your heart? So have, so have you know the, the different places that the different terms are used. Um, I presume people have done studies to try to really connect these, you know, connect each one. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, 
I looked at every case where I've used Lord or Savior and dissected it and tried to explain why in that particular location it was used that way and and then try to connect them together. Yeah, uh, there's a definite connection to context, number one, but also as kind of a large vision of all the different ways that Jesus is referred to uh, by these titles uh, that are used, for sure. Some other thoughts or questions or comments? Well, titles are important, as you can see, and Luke seems to really want to emphasize that through these titles, we have an accurate uh, portrait of who Jesus is. And he demonstrates that connecting titles to events, connecting titles to um, the confession of other people besides the inner circle of the disciples. Anything else that comes well, to mind? Would, um, at that time, Caesar would have been considered a divine Lord, That's right? That's exactly right. Yep, absolutely. You bring up a great point. Um, the term Lord is something that would be very familiar in the first century because Caesar would attribute that title to himself. And so... In, in a lot of ways, the term Lord especially is a term that would be considered um, kind of insurrection against the, the power of the Roman Caesar as well. That's a great point to, to be made. Some other thoughts? Well, you have a bunch of references on here if you want to take the time to look them up, but uh, hope you get a feel for uh, the, the flair of the dramatic through uh, the titles that Luke chooses to use throughout his gospel. So we'll pick up another theme next week, and then we'll finish two weeks from tonight, and then we're going to take some time in May and, and look at the Psalms and how they're organized and and what they are communicating. Any last thoughts before we say goodnight? No? Well, enjoy the rest of this nice week of warm weather, and um, we'll see you online again next Wednesday, okay? Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.